because of your masks on, but hopefully you're all doing well. Um, and obviously these are interesting times that we're all living in. And just, I, I think collectively, it's interesting as a society, we're just going through this kind of groaning and needing to learn to trust in the Lord more um, for various kind of things and what we're, we're going through. So I hope in the next few weeks as I'm here with you, I can bring you some good news from the word um, and some, I want to, we're going to be looking at several characters from the Bible, uh, which I'll explain a little bit. But before I get there, I want to kind of talk about how did we get here today? So uh, my wife and I, we were, uh, we've been living in South Asia in a Muslim country there for the last uh, nine years now. And in July, we were told we were denied what's called a security clearance because of the work that we're doing there. Um, I, I'll just share kind of generally in, in this forum. And if you want to know more privately, I can do that. Um, and so we had to leave the country while a local investigation uh, took place. That's still going on. We, we would love to know news today, um, positive news that we could return, but we're, we're just taking it day by day. We don't know where uh, that's going to go. Um, and so we, we would appreciate your prayers. Our hearts are to go back um, to South Asia. And we've seen in this last year just um, more fruit than we've seen before with a few people getting saved and being um, uh, baptized in the last year. So we're excited and want to be back and, and a part of that. But we don't know what God's got in store for us. Is he going to bring us back to the U.S. for an extended period of time or not? But we appreciate your prayers with that. And and so about a month ago, I reached out to um, the elders here and said, hey, we are uh, in the States. Uh, right now, we don't really have a, pl- we don't have a place of our own to stay in. Um, what do you think about uh, me coming there and taking the pulpit for the month of January? And so they graciously allowed me to do that and give us a place to stay in the parsonage. And it was neat. Even that story, we, uh, I have a cousin here, Peg and Tommy and son, and they posted on Facebook where we bought a house and it's fully furnished. We need to get rid of furniture. Anyone need it? And so we were like, hey, we, I don't think anything is over there at the parsonage. And so God allowed a bunch of things to be brought there. So who buys a house these days with furniture in it? I don't know. Is that common in Long Island or... Probably not, but okay. So as we get started in in thinking about what would I teach on for four weeks, I thought, well, maybe the book of Philippians would be good. And David said, well, that's fine, but we actually preached through that uh, about a year ago or so in, in New Village. And so I've been going through some personal devotions and study about some characters in the Bible. And I want to talk about them for the next few weeks. So today and next week, we'll focus on Gideon. And then the third week together, we'll focus on Hannah. And the last week, we'll talk about Mary. And so what I hope in each of these um, times together that we'll see basically that these people were all human, just like us. And they had their own struggles. They had their sinful issues. But God would work in their situation, and, and we see some tremendous acts of trust on behalf, on, from these people, actually more so even from the, woman, the women, Mar- Hannah and Mary, than even from the, what we see from Gideon. But I hope that in our time together, we'd be able to get some courage almost from the scriptures to trust in God, that he's faithful, that what he promises to us we can see followed through because of our deep trust in him and wanting to walk in obedience with him. So before we get into that, let's just pray and ask the Lord to be with us, and then we'll we'll start in the book of Judges. 
Lord, today, um, no matter where we're at in our faith or if there are not believers here, Lord, or people who are not believers, we all need to trust in you for something, um, whether it's salvation or continuing to grow deeper in our walk with you. Um, there's no one here, even those who've been walking with you for decades, that can say they've arrived and are, are excelling in trust, Lord. It's a constant struggle, a constant battle for us. And we need those reminders. And we also need those good examples from the word and, and just modern day life of people who are trusting you well. And so help us today to see from the story of Gideon that you are worthy to be trusted. You can be trusted and that we and just grow our faith like it says in the Gospels when someone interacted with Jesus and said, help me. I have little faith. I need to grow in that. Lord, would you be with us today in that? Amen. So it's interesting in the study of Gideon, most of us probably think Gideon as a, we, we usually think of him as a coward or someone who needed to test God. But actually in the book of Hebrews 11, it says that Gideon was someone whose faith we should emulate. So I don't really know at what point was the point where Gideon crossed over into that, that uh, his faith was now growing well and he was worthy to be emulated. But we'll see hopefully in the next two weeks that Gideon did do better along the way. And the time, so when did when did Gideon live? He was basically right in the middle of the time period between the Exodus and when David became king of Israel, probably sometime in the 12th century B.C. And it was a time of ups and downs, right? There was a lot of tumultuous times with Israel being in a new land and then also having uh, falling into idol worship and then uh, being punished for that idol worship. And we're going to see that from the book of Judges, that's kind of this repetitive cycle that the Israelites and, and I would think we also can fall into so easily. But I want to go back just a little bit before that and find out where are we at in the story of the Bible up to this point. So in Genesis, we obviously saw that God created a perfect world and that Adam and Eve chose to sin and not obey God fully. And that therefore was pushed, uh, was passed down to us, that sinful nature that talks about in Romans. And God chose Abram and through Abram that all his, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and that through, all, through the, his descendants, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and then Joseph. And the most beautiful story of forgiveness I think probably this world has ever seen is Joseph, who was sold as a slave uh, from his own brothers and then went all the way to Egypt, and God brought, raised him up through some miraculous events. And then when his brothers were going through an incredibly difficult time and a famine, they came to uh, their brother unknowingly, and Joseph had the power to really deny them food to survive or to forgive them, and he chose forgiveness. And we see then that Joseph's family is able to move to Egypt, and they grow and grow and grow. And Egypt says, well, now we've got a problem on our hands. These Israelites are getting too numerous, and so what do they do? They start to oppress them and push them down. And um, they cried out to God. I love that in Exodus. It talks about they cried out to God because of their slavery. But in times of crying out, oftentimes God, we see God actually answer us when, when our hearts are finally to the point of understanding, I really, really, really need help. 
and God comes through. At that time, it was through Moses. And Moses, you think, well, well, we think now of, okay, Moses was a pretty nice guy, wonderful, but he was a murderer and a person who was a refugee fleeing to a new land. And then he married a uh, priest's daughter, a, the, not the good kind of priest, but a, a sorceress or a sorcerer, most likely. And God called Moses, who at first didn't really want to be used by God. So I can't really speak that well. Uh, maybe you could use my brother. But God calls him nonetheless to go to Pharaoh. And these ten powerful plagues are shown to Pharaoh. And they eventually are able to, to um, and the Israelites are eventually let go into the wilderness. Um, not to, and, and that walking, you know, how did they get to the wilderness? They literally had to cross through a sea with about two million people, and God parted that sea. So see how God was so faithful to his people up to that point already? Well, how did Israel do? They went to this new promised land, and then pretty soon after, it's interesting, if you read Numbers, they start complaining, right? It's even interesting in the Bible. You see, they wanted onions. They wanted good food, and this wilderness, this desert, didn't have that. And they complained over 14 different times in the book of numbers and God is constantly you see this constant frustration that God has that Moses has with the Israelites because they're not content people just as a result of that only two people were ever able to cross into this promised land Caleb and Joshua so 40 years passes Joshua now becomes the leader of Israel and helps them to have these various military uh, conquests over the people of the land there and I liked what some, what one commentator said about this, that sometimes we wonder about, like, why does God allow violence in the Old Testament? And now in the New Testament, he seems so loving. But one commentator says that God does not hate the non-Israelites, but despises their, their idolatry and oppression. And that we see in Deuteronomy that God didn't choose Israel because they were someone special or more righteous, but that he would use them instead to drive out the other wicked nations and so God was using this people to do these things not because uh, the other people were uh, less uh, better or were worse off than the Israelites but because they were just not obeying God's will and then we come to the judges which is what we're looking at today and when we think about a judge we often think about um, uh, a person with a gavel right and is going to knock and, you know pound and declare something right or wrong just or unjust, but that's not what these people were. These, this term is more like the, the leader at that time that was used in Israel. They were used to bring Israel back to a right relationship with God. It's interesting. There's no election for these people. There was no like formal process. There was no government, no taxes, no administration. They were just really it's pretty cool to look at like they were just people that you could clearly tell God had set apart for something special and people wanted to follow that. So God himself was causing the, uh, almost like a magnet to these judges um, that would lead Israel. Some we see in the book of Judges, there's some famous ones you probably know. Um, there was Ehud who was stabbed. It's such a funny story in the Bible. He stabbed an incredibly overweight man, right, a king. To, um, to receive the leadership then and conquer Moab. Deborah was the only female judge mentioned, and with the help of a cunning woman, I think in Hebrew it's Yael or 
we might say J-A-E-L, she defeated, um, they defeated part of the Canaanites. That's such a fun story to read in, in Judges. I think it's five, four or five. Gideon we'll look at today. Jephthah was a man that was used. He was a warrior that was born to a prostitute who then defeated the Ammonites. And then you probably remember this story if you know the Bible that he vowed that the first thing that comes out of my door when I get home, I'll sacrifice to the Lord. And who came out right away? It was his own daughter. And she, he would later sacrifice her to the Lord. Samson then was mighty in strength, killed many Philistines, but was weak in his purity and his walk with the Lord. And then the last one who's actually not mentioned in Judges was Samuel, who was used kind of as the bridge now between uh, this theocracy and then a monarchy that would happen with David. But what's the pattern we see in Judges? And probably, if you're honest, you see it in your own life, is that there's a pattern of walking with the Lord well. I don't have PowerPoint, so I can't stick this up here. But there's about six stages throughout the book of Judges. And one is that there's peace in the land, in Israel serving the Lord. Then Israel does evil and in the eyes of the Lord. And then third is God punishes Israel. And then Israel goes into some sort of enslavement or people uh, capturing them, causing difficulties to their land. Fourth is Israel then cries out to God. God Fifth, God raises up this judge. And then sixth, Israel is delivered. And we see this time and time again in the book of Judges um, through, I think, I don't have the number on it. I want to say it's at least 10 judges that we see here. And, and we're not talking about just short periods of time often. We're talking about longer periods of time, like some 40 years of peace in the land, and then sin reigns again. And in the story of Gideon, we'll see this with seven years. But I want to look at Judges 2. This kind of is the theme we see that's repeated in Judges. Judges 2, 10 to 19. And I'm reading from the NIV. And this is basically what we see over and over. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up and who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook the... They forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against, the, against Israel, and the Lord, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into all their hands of the enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress." And the Lord raised up the judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to the other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned their ways of, turned from the ways of the ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. 
They refuse to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So we see throughout this book that actually Israel does not get better, more holy, or kind of learn their lessons, but we actually see a continuous negative decline. If you read all the way through the book of Judges, you would see that. And if we're honest, even in our own lives, without the Holy Spirit's help to make us pure and choose right decisions, we would be doing the same exact thing, doing, going down a continuous decline and not walking with God as he wants us to. And so we see four times in the book of Judges this kind of omen, this, this sign that in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You kind of end the book of Judges feeling like, ugh, you know, almost like you've, when you watch the news these days, you're just like, who, who is choosing right these days? What, what's, is anybody interested in following the Lord? And so I just, multiple times this week, I just said, I got to turn off this news. This is just so dis- discouraging watching everything going on. So, let, so that's the big picture of what's going on before God calls Gideon. Now in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, we're going to see what's the more immediate picture that's going on. And I I just think it's so fascinating reading this story, looking at it, investigating the scriptures, and and drawing parallels to our times today. So in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 6, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive... The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count their to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, the last time they saw God work in their midst was about 40 years beforehand with Deborah and then the peace that came after, right? And it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 48, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 28, 49 to 52, this kind of exact thing was promised, that if the Israelites didn't follow God, they would be overtaken by other nations that would devour their herds and their crops. And this is literally happening right now. And um, you could look at, Israel probably could have said, uh, God, why are the Midianites doing these things to us? Why are they destroying our land and causing us to fear? But Really, Israel had nobody else to blame but themselves for this disaster that was upon them. For seven years, Israel was living like this. And it says that the Midianites impoverished them to literally make them poor. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in that time? Like we've, we've just now gone through one year of a pandemic and we've had struggles. But can you imagine another six and, and as far as I know, no one's literally taking our land right now, taking our crops, taking our food from us. Back in March, uh, we were hearing news about things in California, like people were hoarding lots of things, right? Hoarding toilet paper, rice, flour, all the essentials. I don't know if that was the same here, but 
Can you imagine another six years of that? And so when I think about that, I think, oh, man, Gideon maybe wasn't that crazy to not trust in God that much. He was probably I was probably would probably have a similar response to him because seven years is a long time for patterns to set in and fear to kind of settle into your bones, so to speak. But in verse six, we see that the uh, we, we saw that the Midianites were impoverishing Israel and Israel responded finally it says that they cried out to God for help. And remember that pattern I told you that there was Israel was obeying, and then they did evil, and then God punished them, and then they cried out. And so we're, we're going to see what, what was God's response. They did this also in Exodus 2, back, back before when they were enslaved. It said during uh, Exodus 2, 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. I think this is so true about our Lord, is that when we cry out to him, when we fully open ourselves up to him, when we finally realize we don't have any resources left um, within our own self to do anything, that then is oftentimes the time that God acts, that he gives peace to us or he gives comfort, or he then starts to change things. But oftentimes, for all of us, it takes that beating up of ourselves almost. Like, we have to finally get to the point where Michael or uh, Ralph finally realizes, you don't, you don't really have anything, uh, any strength. Cap- you're not capable of any strength to do much. I love this in some other verses on it. Psalm 56, 8, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle and recorded each one in your book. Lamentations 2, 18 and 19. Cry aloud before the Lord, O walls of beautiful Jerusalem. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no relief. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. And in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast, your, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, right? God is not like some, uh, sometimes we have an ultra, uh, an idea of an ultra male ego, like, ah, if you got a problem, be quiet, deal with it yourself. Is that the way God is? Like, God actually says, like, talk to me about it. Release your feelings, release your thoughts to me. And this is what Israel is doing. And so in verse 7, we see God sends a prophet to Israel. It's interesting. This is an unnamed prophet. We have no idea what this person's name was. And this is right before we get, we see Gideon and God interact. So in verse 7 to 10, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So God heard their cry. He sent them a prophet that talked about the past, that reminded them of God's goodness, and then also what God told them not to do. And we see that Israel didn't really do too good of a job at listening to that. They ended up, we'll see later on in the story, they're literally having all uh, idols to Baal and an Asherah pole. But according to Amos 3.7, we see it says, The sovereign Lord does nothing 
without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. He reminds them of this Exodus story. And throughout the Old Testament, even the New Testament, we see this Exodus story being repeated. This idea that we're an enslaved people that needed God to help them. And we see the spiritual parallel with the gospel, right? We are an enslaved people, a people who can't get out of this slavery without outside help and God's help through Jesus to forgive us of our sins. But in verse 10, we specifically see God says, you are not to worship the gods of the people you're living with. And Israel was, and they did not listen to him, and therefore they were being punished. That's what's going on here. In the seven years of punishment from the Midianites and Amalekites, they were, these, this was literally just their discipline for not walking with him. <clears throat> so today, we can often think, um, we're not as bad as Israel, right? I don't make an idol, uh, like a physical idol. I don't have anything that I'm bowing down to. A golden calf, I don't have that. We can kind of almost think like, hey, we're enlightened people in 21st century America. But really, how would you define what an idol is? It's really just anything that takes your allegiance or your worship away from God. So if we probably were to ask each other, what are the idols today? We'd come up with different responses, but some I see are we can idolize money. I got to make more money to be happier. And then once I get enough money, then I'll be able to do this or that. But obviously that's not true. Security, uh, whether it's job security, financial security, uh, safety, physical security, we're, we're usually aiming to make this a major goal and aim in our life. Not that these are bad things, but we can worship them above the Lord or trust in something, my my the amount in my bank account more than God actually being the one to provide for our needs. Also with careers or with politics, we can make these into idols or comfort. And we need to always check ourselves to ask ourselves, am I placing anything above God and my worship of him? And that's what this prophet is doing. He's saying, remember what God promised you, what he did in Egypt, and he asked you not to worship anything else. And now you're receiving this punishment as a result of that. And so we see now God come to Gideon in the form of an angel, an angel of the Lord in verse 11. We see that this angel of the Lord is seen. We see this angel three times in the book of Judges. And in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came <clears throat> and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So this is the first time we meet Gideon. He's minding his own business. He's threshing wheat in a wine press, which is the wrong place to do that. But because the Midianites were so ravaging their land, they had to hide, hide their crops, essentially. And this angel of the Lord comes to him. Now, this would be a fascinating Bible study if you wanted to look at who is the angel of the Lord. At least 65 times we see him in the book, in the Old Testament. Sometimes we see him and commentators say that's Jesus himself. Other times we see it and we think, well, it might be God the Father himself. In this case, we, we don't know, but the, it goes back and forth with language that I think maybe shows that this is God the Father. But nonetheless, this angel calls Gideon a mighty warrior, a man of valor. Now, Gideon is not yet that person. 
and he is probably pretty low in terms of his, his faith in the Lord, and um, he's hiding um, this, these crops, and we don't see him as this like courageous person, at least yet. But maybe God is calling him to this. He's kind of reminding him that, hey, I'm, I'm with you always, and I will use you to do something great. But at the time, Gideon was not that person. He was the son of an idol worshiper living in a terrible time in Israel's history. But now he's literally having an encounter with the living God. And in verse 13, we see Gideon's confused. He says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this bad stuff happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is kind of, uh, I see this interaction with Gideon, and Gideon basically saying, I don't really know, I think you know what you're talking about, uh, Lord. I, you're telling me this, but it, two times he says, pardon me, Lord, which I think is the polite way of saying, uh, I don't know if you really uh, understand the situation, God. And it's, it's so telling in our own lives. Don't we do that to the Lord at times? We can kind of think, well, I know more about this than the Lord does, obviously, which is obviously sin in and of itself that we would doubt so much. But we, we can easily do that. And in the past few months for myself, I know at times I've, I've thought, man, God, why did you remove us from South Asia? Why aren't you making this investigation go faster? Isn't that better than me waiting? Um, or maybe you say that, uh, you've said that yourself too. You know, why don't I have this yet? Why did that person have to die? Why did this situation happen in my life? But one of my seminary professors says that oftentimes in these spaces that are called, he calls the liminal spaces of life or basically the in-between phases of our own lives, God is often using, uh, teaching us the most there. And instead of asking why God, he, su- he suggests we should ask what for? What is this happening for? What, what is God trying to use this situation in my life to do or in, the, in our body's life to change in our lives? So Gideon is obviously not deserving of this calling that God has, but God is nonetheless going to use him to do something um, marvelous here. And in verse 14, the Lord says, Gideon, or the Lord tor- turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Right, God is calling Gideon to this ministry that is far beyond what Gideon actually has the resources to do. He was, they were, they were, remember, they were living in such tumultuous times, they were having to flee into caves. And God is saying, go and save Israel out of Midian's hand. I'm sending you. If God told you that today, uh, how do you think you would feel if you, all your neighbors are surrounding you, ruining everything that you have? and says, I'm going to use you to go defeat those people, how would you respond? I don't know if, I, I think I would be like, um, who are you talking to, God? Like, <laughs> maybe there's someone else that's more powerful behind me. I can't yet uh, picture myself doing that. And Gideon again says in verse 15, pardon me, my Lord. Again, the polite way of saying, God, I, I know more than you in this situation. But he says, how could I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the weakest in my family. 
right? We've all had times in our life where God asks us to do something. When you have a good set of excuses to, to not do it, God, I'm not gifted enough or able to do this. We don't know Gideon's true motives, true theological beliefs here, but I think I would, I would posit to say that Gideon doesn't have much faith in God at this time at all. He doesn't believe that the God of the, in the, uh, the Exodus story, that that God is still walking with them today. But that's a lie, and God still was there walking with them and wanting to use him. And come on, if we look in the scriptures, we see constantly that God is God delights in using people that are seemingly weak, young, um, even minorities, um, the unexpected people to accomplish great things for his glory. I love the Apostle Paul in his words where he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And these are, this is a beautiful posture to arrive at for the believer, is to be able to say, I can't do anything well on my own strength. And so therefore, I, I just, Lord, please help me. And oftentimes when we get to that point, we start to see God work. We start to see God do things that we would never picture him doing. And that we can see because of his character that he's faithful and more righteous than we could ever be. That he will, um, for those who trust in him, that, that we have nothing to fear. So how did this conversation end with Gideon and the Lord? In verse 16, it said, the Lord said, he answered Gideon, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replies, If I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord says, I will wait until you return. So Gideon wants to offer something to God, and he recognizes finally that he's speaking with a divine being. But he also wants this another a sign proving that the angel of the Lord is who he says he is, that, that Gideon won't be wasting his time or his energies doing this. And we see then that Gideon says to wait. And it's interesting that the God of the universe is willing to wait, sit under a tree and wait while someone cooks a meal for him. I just find that so fascinating, a meal that he'll never touch. But God is willing and patient to wait while Gideon sorts out the uh, necessary things in his heart to be able to obey him. So Gideon goes inside, prepares this big meal, which at the time, remember, considering the food insecurity, would have been a significant meal, a goat he kills, and enough flour for its, it comes out to somewhere around like between, around 40 pounds of flour. So if you, I don't know if any of you cook, but a a pound of flour is what, like, I don't know, a sack like that big, right? Consider that 40 times. How much, how much would you get out of that? You'd get a lot of cakes. And so Gideon's making this, this meal is being made. Probably Gideon wasn't alone cooking this. It reminds me a lot of the story of uh, in Genesis 18 where the angel comes to Abraham and Sarah and they're preparing a meal for these three men that are waiting, waiting there. Well, the meal is brought out. It's arranged and Gideon steps back and the angel of the Lord What does he do? He just consumes it with fire right away, and the angel of the Lord disappears. 
And Gideon finally realizes that he was talking to God himself. And, and he's terrified. And the angel says to him, peace, don't be afraid, you will not die. Now that probably would have been enough in a day's work for Gideon, right? Okay, I, I need to figure out what just happened. If, if I was Gideon, I'd be like stumbling with my words or trying to think, I need to understand what is God calling me to? Well, Gideon most likely goes back to his house that night and uh, God comes kind of, you know, knocking again. And Gideon's maybe figuring, oh gosh, what is what is what are you going to ask of me this time? And we see in verse 25 that that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, and tear down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it and build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of its height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So we, we see that actually Gideon, in, in this story, he had just built an altar to God, offered this food to him. But Gideon had a hidden sin, a secret that was in his own house. And what was it? It was idols. So Gideon was living a, a hypocrite, uh, living as a hypocrite, essentially wanting to build an altar to God and then having this other altar in his own home, right? And even for ourselves today, we can ask ourselves, are there, are there hidden sins? Am I trying to both serve God in my life while also hiding this other sin in my own home? And may we repent of those things and confess those things to one another so that way we would, we would see God's goodness come in our lives. Well, the, all, the idols that Gideon had then were different than we've seen. I've never seen in my, with my own two eyes a, an altar of Baal or an Asherah pole. I don't know if any of you have. The most I've ever seen is just online on a picture. So who, who are these? What are these idols? So Baal was just a common god that oftentimes we see in Israel's existence that they, they had trouble with, with the, meaning they worshipped this idol quite often. It was a Canaanite deity that was the son of their chief god, El. And it usually took the shape of a bull or a ram and was associated with fertility. And then the worship of Baal was this nagging sin we see in Judges 3.7. In the book of Judges, it's mentioned 11 times alone that Israel struggled with this sin of idolatry. Now, an Asherah pole was usually kind of, it kind of went hand in hand with Baal. And it was more of the, the, um, the goddess that the Canaanites had. So the god, the, the son of the god El was Baal and the goddess was an Asherah pole. It was usually in a wooded area where a carved tree could be made into this, this idol. And in Deuteronomy 16, we see that God specifically told them, do not make an Asherah pole and, or you would be punished. And Israel is doing that very thing. And so God is calling Gideon out. He's saying, look, if you want to worship and lead my people, if you want to worship me and lead my people, you've got to take care of the business, that, the idols that you have back in your house. And I think the same is true for us today. If any of us are uh, desiring leadership in the church, right, we must not be people who have hidden sins, fake, uh, or basically are hypocrites in the church, that we are people who take care of the stuff at home, 
and repent of it and, and seek help in that. Not that we're perfect, but we want to walk in obedience to God as well as then uh, publicly walking faithfully with him. And so Gideon, uh, God knows this about Gideon, and God is going to have to deal with this. Uh, Gideon is going to have to deal with this if he's going to really be used by God. And so obviously such a direct confrontation with these idols was going to be some sort of trouble. And so God tells him, tear down these altars. And what does Gideon do? Gideon takes some of his servants that he has in verse 27. We see he takes these 10 servants. And because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he, he decided he would obey, but he would do it at nighttime where it's convenient, right? No one sees you at night or very few people can see you at night rather than in the daytime. And I think this up to this, this verse is one of the most telling about Gideon. I think he wanted to follow God. I really do. But I think he at this time is showing he's a he's a coward. He's afraid to um, do the right thing uh, because people might make fun of him or cause him trouble. Instead, he's willing to obey, but he wants to do it on his terms. He's willing to uh, do what God says, but when, when he thinks it's okay or safe to do that. And so he does obey, um, and, and which causes now a whole other ruckus. And in verse 28, we see, In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and a second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. And they said, Who did this? And they carefully investigated. They were told, well, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Notice that these people who wanted to kill Gideon were Israelites. They were supposed to be fighting for the Lord and now they, were, they had totally reversed their passions, and they were now willing to kill for, on, for, for Baal's sake. They had totally distorted what their true calling was in life. And so Gideon, who, Gideon's father, who previously had these idols, you would kind of expect him to maybe get behind him and say, you know what, my son des- des- deserves to die. He is defeated and torn down these idols. But thankfully, Gideon's dad got the the message behind this, that God was more victorious than these idols. And so in verse 31, we see Joash replied to the crowd, the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to save him? Whoever fights for him should be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal, that is, saying, let Baal contend with him. So Jerob, uh, Joash finally understood this, that God was more victorious. And that's what this powerful sign was, to tear down the altar of this, this deity was to, and then replace it with an altar to God was basically saying, look who's stronger, look who's more magnificent, look who's more victorious, able to defend himself, which is what the name then Gideon comes with, let him contend with Baal, which shows that Gideon could contend with Baal, that he was able to defeat these gods in the power of, of God's, with the strength of God himself. And Joash, his father, finally does what's right, and he honors his son. 
So we're going to close here today and look at the rest of the story of uh, Gideon next week. And we're going to see how God is going to continue to break Gideon's uh, spirit um, in, a, in a good way to finally show that it's only God who could be trusted. But before we close, I want to just kind of show you some ways that I think it's easy for all of us to be like Gideon. And the last thing I want to do is walk away from this story and say, Oh man, that guy Gideon had so much, or had such little faith. I thank God I'm not like Gideon. You know, I'm I'm so much better than him. But these are the ways that I think all of us could relate to Gideon, is that when we're in long, extended trials or um, or just painful situations, tribulations, um, we can tend to think, well, God's not doing what He's supposed to be doing, right? God is supposed to figure this pandemic out a lot sooner than He than he is, we can think, all right? That we, we need to realize that God God's timetable is different than ours. He might be doing something for a long time because he's working in us, he's working in others. We really have no idea at times what God's up to, and that's okay, but he's calling us to a deeper level of trust in the unknown. During these kind of times, it's easy to have our faith weaken and to not believe that God can change things quickly. We don't believe that the miraculous can happen. And so we need to have that continual faith in these in difficult times. We can forget, like Gideon did, that God is with us every second of every day and can use us to do wonderful things in his power. Right? Gideon said, you were with the Israelites then. This was like 250 years before he was alive. You were with them then, but you're not today, obviously. But that's not true. He's with us in the same way today as he was two years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. Or we can other, uh, oftentimes we can also wonder, you know, what will others say? Like Gideon was afraid. Okay, God, I'll obey you. I'll tear down those altars. But just don't let anyone else see. I don't really want to get too much heat from the townspeople. Uh, I'll, I'll obey you, but only at nighttime when it's convenient for me. And last is that sometimes we want um, that we don't always want to obey in the way that he wants us to. We want to make the terms of obedience. But God is not asking us to decide, you know, when is it convenient? When is it right? He's asking us oftentimes to obey so can you see yourself in Gideon too? Can you see that without God's help that you wouldn't have, we all wouldn't have any sort of redemption? Do you see that the gospel story is, is hidden even in this? That Gideon is a man who needed help, who couldn't fix things on his own, just like we are people who need help, not just to survive 2021, but to survive eternal life with him? And that we need a Savior to, to cleanse us, to purify us, to strengthen us, to obey him. So let's just, I just want to pause and then I'll close in prayer together. And I would encourage you if, you, if you have anything that you would like to confess, any sin, those are good things to do. Sometimes we feel like, oh, if I confess, then what will people think of me? What will this happen? But that's what the body, the church body is there for. And I would encourage you to go to the elders here today, or if this isn't your regular body, that you go to a place where you have spiritual leaders over you and just confess sin before them. That way we can walk together in purity with the Lord and doing what he wants us to do. 
And so I'll just pause for a minute or two and may you search, search your hearts and then I'll, I'll pray to close us. Lord God, I thank you that you promise to always be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. And oftentimes we can feel that you are distant, just like Gideon did, Lord. And in those moments, I ask that you would powerfully work in our situation and in our hearts through the Holy Spirit to show us that you are with us. You do long to walk with your people. I do pray, Lord, for anyone here who might be struggling with a sin that's been habitual or something that um, hasn't hasn't yet been they've been freed from I ask for you to work in their lives and help us to all realize that no one is um, uh, more holier than another that it's only by your power that we can say no to sin thank you for Jesus and what he does in our lives to free us from sin and allow us to do wonderful things for his name that bring him glory and lord may you may you work in us this week may may we walk closely with you and may we um, grow in our trust and just walking obediently with you um, not fearing what other people will say or can can um, throw at us as accusations but fully trusting that walking with you is the best decision and, and for us in all situations of life. Amen.